Tertium Organum by Peter Yaspensky. Read by Alice Flanagan. Chapter 22. Because of the length of this chapter, I have divided it into three parts, and this is part one. To trace historically the process of the development of those ideas and systems founded upon higher logic or proceeding from it would indeed be a matter of great interest and importance. But this would be difficult and almost impossible of accomplishment because we lack definite knowledge of the time and origin, the means of transmitting, and the sequence of ideas in ancient philosophical systems and religious teachings. There are innumerable guesses and speculations concerning the manner of this succession. Many of these guesses and speculations are accepted as unquestioned until new ones appear which controvert them. The opinions of different investigators in regard to these questions are very divergent, and the truth is often difficult to determine. Particularly conducive to confusion are the so-called theosophical authors, as, for example, Schurey, C.W. Liedbeter, Dr. Rudolf Steiner, and others, who know everything. I shall not dwell at all on the question of the succession of ideas, either from the historical or any other point of view. The proposed outline of systems which refer to the world of noumena is not intended to be complete. This is not the history of thought, but merely examples of movements of thought which led to the same conclusions as those at which I arrived in this book. In the book Theosophy, or Psychological Religion, the noted scholar Max Muller gives an interesting analysis of mystical religions and mystical philosophical systems. He dwells much on India and her teachings. That which we can study nowhere but in India is the all-absorbing influence which religion and philosophy may exercise on the human mind. So far as we can judge, a large class of people in India, not only the priestly class but the nobility also, not men only but women, never looked upon their life on earth as something real. What was real to them was the invisible, the life to come. What formed the theme of their conversations, what formed the subject of their meditations, was the real that alone lent some kind of reality to this unreal phenomenal world. Whoever was supposed to have caught a new ray of truth was visited by young and old, was honoured by princes and by kings, was looked upon indeed as holding a position far above that of kings and princes. This is the side of life of ancient India which deserves our study, because there has been nothing like it in the whole world, not even in Greece or Palestine. I know quite well, says Muller, that there can never be a whole nation of philosophers or metaphysical dreamers, dot, dot, dot. And we must never forget that all through history it is the few, not the many, who impress their character on a nation and have a right to represent it as a whole. What do we know of Greece at the time of the Ionian and Eleatic philosophers except for utterances of seven sages? What do we know of the Jews at the time of Moses except the traditions preserved in the laws and the prophets? It is the prophets, the poets, the lawgivers and teachers, however small their number, who speak in the name of the people, and who alone stand out to represent the nondescript multitude behind them, to speak their thoughts and to express their sentiments. Real Indian philosophy, even in that embryonic form in which we find it in the Upanishads, stands completely by itself. And if we ask what was the highest purpose of the teachings of the Upanishads, we can state it in three words, as it has been stated by the greatest Vedanta teachers themselves, namely Tatvanasi, which means thou art that. 
That stands for that which is known to us under different names and different systems of ancient and modern philosophy. It is Zeus, or the Ice Theos, or the Tuon in Greece. It is what Plato meant by the eternal idea, what agnostics call the unknowable, and what I call the infinite nature. This is what in India is called Brahman, the being behind all beings, the power that emits the universe, sustains it and draws it back again to itself. The thou is what I called the infinite in man, the soul, the self, the being behind every human ego, free from all bodily fetters, free from passions, free from all attachments. Atman. The expression thou art that means thy soul is the Brahman, or, in other words, the subject and the object of all being and of all knowing are the one and the same. This is the gist of what I call psychological religion, or theosophy, the highest summit of thought which the human mind has reached, which has found different expressions in different religions or philosophies, but nowhere such a clear and powerful realisation as in the ancient Upanishads of India. Max Muller calls our attention to the fact that this recognition of the identity of the that and thou is not satisfied with mere poetical metaphor, such as that the human soul emanated from the divine soul, or was a portion of it. No, what is asserted is a substantial identity of what had for a time been wrongly distinguished as a subject and object of the world. For as long as the individual soul does not free itself from messiance or a belief in duality, it takes something else for itself. True knowledge of the self, or true self-knowledge, expresses itself in the words, Thou art that, or I am Brahman, the nature of Brahman being unchangeable eternal cognition. Until that stage has been reached, the individual soul is fettered by the body, by the organs of sense, nay, even by the mind and its various functions. The soul, the self, says the Vedanta philosopher, cannot be different from the Brahman, because Brahman comprehends all reality, and nothing that really is can therefore be different from Brahman. Secondly, the individual self cannot be conceived as a modification of Brahman, because Brahman by itself cannot be changed, whether by itself, because it is one and perfect in itself, or by anything outside of it, because there exists nothing outside of it. Here we see, says Muller, the Vedantist moving on exactly the same stratum of thought in which the Eleatic philosophers moved in Greece. If there is one infinite, they say, there cannot be another, for the other would limit the one and thus render it finite. So, as applied to God, the Eleatics argued, if God is to be the mightiest and the best, he must be one, for if there were two or more, he would not be the mightiest and best. The Eleatics continued their monistic argument by showing that this one infinite being cannot be divided, so that anything could be called a portion of it, because there is no power that could separate anything from it. Nay, it cannot even have parts, for as it has no beginning and no end, it can have no parts, for a part has a beginning and an end. These Eleatic ideas, namely that there is and there can be only one absolute being, infinite, unchangeable, without a second, without parts and passions, are the same ideas which underlie the Upanishads and have been fully worked out in the Vedante Sutras. In most of the religions of the ancient world, says Muller, the relation between the soul and God has been represented as the return of the soul to God, 
a yearning for God, a kind of divine homesickness, finds expression in most religions. But the road that is to lead us home, and the reception which the soul may expect in the Father's house, have been represented in very different ways in different religions. According to some religious teachers, a return of the soul to God is possible after death only. According to other religious teachers, the final beatitude of the soul can be achieved in this life. That beatitude requires knowledge only, knowledge of the necessary unity of what is divine in man and what is divine in God. The Brahmins call it self-knowledge, that is to say, the knowledge of our true self, if it is anything, can only be that self which is all in all, and beside which there is nothing else. Sometimes this conception of the intimate relation between the human and the divine natures comes suddenly, as a result of an unexplained intuition or self-recollection. Sometimes, however, it seems as if the force of logic had driven the human mind to the same result. If God had once been recognised as the infinite in nature, and the soul as the infinite in man, it seemed to follow that there could be two infinites. The Eleatics had clearly passed through a similar phase of thought in their own philosophy. If there is an infinite, they said, it is one, for if there were two, they could not be infinite, but would be finite one towards the other. But that which exists is infinite, and there cannot be more such. Therefore, that which exists is one. Nothing can be more definite than this Eleatic monism, and with it the admission of a soul, the infinite in man, as different from God, the infinite in nature, would have been inconceivable. In India, it was so expressed that Brahman and Atman, the spirit, were in their nature one. The early Christians also, at least those who had been brought up in the schools of Neoplatonist philosophy, had a clear perception that if the soul is infinite and immortal in its nature, it cannot be anything beside God, that it must be of God and in God. St Paul gave but his own bold expression to the same faith or knowledge when he uttered the words which have startled so many theologians. In him we live and move and have our being. If anyone else had uttered these words, they would at once have been condemned as pantheism. No doubt, they are pantheism, and yet they express the very key note of Christianity. The divine sonship of man is only a metaphorical expression, but it was meant originally to embody the same idea. And when the question was asked how the consciousness of this divine sonship could ever have been lost, the answer given by Christianity was, by sin. The answer given by the Upanishads was by Avidya, Nessians. This marks a similarity, and at the same time the characteristic difference between these two religions. The question how Nessians laid hold on the human soul and made it imagine that it could live or move or have its true being anywhere but in Brahman remains as unanswerable in Hindu philosophy as in Christianity, the question how sin first came into the world. Both philosophies, that of the East and that of the West, says Muller, start from the common point, namely from the conviction that our ordinary knowledge is uncertain, if not altogether wrong. This revolt of the human mind against itself is the first step in all philosophy. In our own philosophical language, we may put the question thus, how did the real become phenomenal, and how can the phenomenal become real again? Or in other words, 
How was the infinite changed into the finite? How was the eternal changed into the temporal? And how can the temporal regain its eternal nature? Or, to put it in more familiar language, how was this world created? And how can it be uncreated again? Nescience, or avidya, is regarded as the cause of the phenomenal semblance. In the Upanishads, the meaning of Brahman changes. Sometimes it is almost an objective god, existing separately from the world. But then we see Brahman as the essence of all things, dot, dot, dot. And the soul, knowing that it is no longer separated from that essence, learns the highest lesson of the whole Vedanta doctrine. Tatsvamasi, thou art that. That is to say, thou, who for a time didst seem to be something by thyself, art that, art really nothing apart from the divine essence. To know Brahman is to be Brahman. Almost in the same words as the Eleatic philosophers and the German mystics of the 14th century, the Vedantists argued that it would be self-contradictory to admit that there could be anything besides the infinite or Brahman, which is all in all, and therefore the soul cannot be anything different from it, can never claim a separate and independent existence. Brahman has to be conceived as perfect, and therefore unchangeable. The soul cannot be conceived as a real modification or deterioration of Brahman. And as Brahman has neither beginning nor end, neither can it have any parts, therefore the soul cannot be a part of Brahman, but the whole of Brahman must be present in every individual soul. This is the same as the teaching of Plotinus, who held with equal consistency that the true being is totally present in every part of the universe. The Vedanta philosophy rests on the fundamental thesis that the soul or the absolute being or Brahman are one in their essence. Dot, dot, dot. The fundamental principle of the Vedanta philosophy is that in reality there exists and there can exist nothing but Brahman, that Brahman is everything. In India, as anywhere else, man imagines at first that he, in his individual, bodily and spiritual character, is something that exists, and that all the objects of the outer world also exist as objects. Idealistic philosophy has swept away this world-old prejudice more thoroughly in India than anywhere else. The Nessians, which creates a separation between the individual soul and Brahman, can be removed by science or knowledge only. And this knowledge, or vidya, is imparted in the Vedanta, which shows that all our ordinary knowledge is simply the result of ignorance or nescience is uncertain, deceitful and perishable, or, as we should say, is phenomenal, relative and conditioned. The true knowledge or complete insight cannot be gained by sensuous perception, nor by inference. According to the orthodox Vedantist, Sruti alone, or what is called revelation, can impart that knowledge and can remove the nescience which is innate in human nature. Of the higher Brahman nothing can be predicated, but it is and that through amnesians it appears to be this or that. When a great Indian sage was asked to describe Brahman, he was simply silent. That was his answer. When it is said that Brahman is, that means at the same time that Brahman is not. That is to say that Brahman is nothing of what is supposed to exist in our sensuous perceptions. Whatever we may think of this philosophy, we cannot deny its metaphysical boldness or its logical consistency. 
If Brahman is all in all, the one without a second, nothing can be said to exist that is not Brahman. There is no room for anything outside of the infinite and universal, nor is there room for two infinities, for the infinite in nature and the infinite in man. There is, and there can be one infinite, one Brahman only. This is the beginning and the end of the Vedanta. As the shortest summary of the ideas of the Vedanta, two verses of the Sankara, the commentator and interpreter of Vedanta, are often quoted. Brahma is true, the world is false. The soul is Brahma and nothing else. This is really a very perfect summary. What truly and really exists is Brahman, the one absolute being. The world is false, or rather, it is not as it seems to be, that is, Everything which is presented to us by means of our senses is phenomenal or relative and can be nothing else. The soul again, or rather every man's soul, though it may seem to be this or that, is in reality nothing but Brahma. In relation to the question of the origin of the world, two famous commentators of the Vedanta, Sankara and Ramanaja, differ. Ramanaja holds to the theory of evolution, Sankara to the theory of illusion. It is very important to observe that the Vedantist does not go as far as certain Buddhist philosophers who look upon the phenomenal world as simply nothing. No, their world is real, only it is not what it seems to be. Sankara claims for the phenomenal world a reality sufficient for all practical purposes, sufficient to determine our practical life and moral obligations. There is a veil, but the Vedanta philosophy teaches us that the eternal light behind it can always be perceived more or less clearly through philosophical knowledge. It can be perceived because in reality it is always there. Though by a different way, the Vedantists arrived really in the end at the same result as Kant and more recent philosophers who hold with Kant that our experience supplies us only with the modes of the unconditioned as presented under the conditions of our consciousness. It is these conditions or limitations of human consciousness which are called in India avidya. Their result is maya, the illusory world. It may seem strange to find the results of the philosophy of Kant and his followers thus anticipated under varying expressions in the Upanishads and in the Vedanta philosophy of ancient India. In the chapters about the Logos and about Christian theosophy, Max Muller says that the religion is the bridge between the visible and the invisible between finite and infinite. It may be truly said that the founders of the religions of the world have all been bridge builders. As soon as the existence of a beyond, of a heaven above the earth, of powers above us and beneath us has been recognised, a great gulf seemed to be fixed between what was called by various names the earthly and the heavenly, the material world and the spiritual, the phenomenal and the noumenal, or best of all the visible and the invisible world. And it was the chief object of religion to unite these two worlds, whether by the arches of hope and fear or by the iron chains of logical syllogisms. The idea of the Logos represented such a bridge. It took many different forms, expressing the first divine thought, and then developed into the idea of the Son of God incarnated on the earth. Around this idea, the mythological element of ancient religions accumulated. Among contemporary thinkers, the noted psychologist, Professor William James, recently deceased, approached nearer to all the others to the ideas of Max Muller's theosophy. 
In the last chapter of his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, Professor James says, and Dispensky quotes, The warring gods and formulas of the various religions do indeed cancel each other, but there is a certain uniform deliverance in which religions may appear to meet. This is the liberation of the soul. Man becomes conscious that if his higher part is conterminous and continuous, with a more of the same quality, which is operative in the universe outside of him, and which he can keep in working touch with, and in a fashion get on board of, and save himself when all his lower being has gone to pieces in the wreck. What is the objective truth or contents of religious experiences? Is such a more merely our own notation, or does it really exist? If so, in what shape does it exist? And in what form should we conceive that the union with it, of which religious geniuses are so convinced? Is the answering of these questions that the various theologies perform their theoretical work and that their divergencies most come to light? They all agree that the more really exists, though some of them hold it to exist in the shape of a personal god or gods, while others are satisfied to conceive it as a stream of ideal tendency. Dot, dot, dot. It is when they treat of the experience of union with it that their speculative differences appear most clearly. Over this point, pantheism and theism, nature and second birth, works of grace and karma, immortality and reincarnation, rationalism and mysticism, carry on inveterate disputes. At the end of my lecture on philosophy, I held out the notion that an impartial science of religions might sift out from the midst of their discrepancies a common body of doctrine, which she might also formulate on terms to which the physical science need not object. This, I said, she might adopt as her own reconciling hypothesis and recommend it for general belief. Let me then propose as an hypothesis that whatever it may be on the father's side, the more with which the religious experience we feel ourselves connected is on the hither side of the subconscious continuation of our conscious life. The conscious person is continuous with the wider self. Dot, dot, dot. The further limits of our being plunge, it seems to me, into an altogether other dimension of existence from the sensible and merely understandable world. Name it to the mythical region or the supernatural region. We belong to it in a more intimate sense than that in which we belong to the visible world, for we belong in the most intimate sense wherever our ideals belong. Dot, dot, dot. The communion with the invisible world is a real process with real results. Dot, dot, dot. This communion we see in mysticism. Dot, dot, dot. Personal religious experience has its roots and centre in mystical states of consciousness, says Professor James. And that is the end of the quote, as Spinsky continues. But what, after all, is mysticism? Returning to the terminology established in the foregoing chapters, we may say that mysticism is knowledge by means of the expanded consciousness. Until quite recently, scientific psychology did not recognise the reality of the mystical experience and regarded all mystical states as pathological ones, unhealthy conditions of the normal consciousness. Even now, positivist psychologists hold in this opinion, embracing in one common classification real mystical states, pseudo-mystical versions of the usual consciousness, and purely psychopathic states. 
This, of course, can be of no assistance to a correct understanding of the question. Before going forward, let us therefore establish certain criteria for the identification of real mystical states. Professor James enumerates the following. Ineffability, noetic quality, transiency, passivity. But some of these characteristics belong also to the simple emotional states, and he fails to exactly define how mystical states can be distinguished from emotional ones of analogous character. Considering mystical states as knowledge by expanded consciousness, it is possible to give quite definite criteria for their discernment and their differentiation from the generality of psychic experiences. Number 1. Mystical states give knowledge which nothing else can give. Number 2. Mystical states give knowledge of a numeral world with all its signs and characteristics. Number 3. The mystical states of men of different ages and different peoples exhibit an astonishing similarity, sometimes amounting to complete identity. Number 4. The results of the mystical experience are entirely illogical from our ordinary point of view. They are superlogical, i.e. tertium organum, which is the key to the mystical experience, is applicable to them in its entirety. The last named criterion is especially important. The illogicality of the data of mystical experience forced science to repudiate them. Now we have established that logicality, from our standpoint, is the necessary condition of the world beyond, or noumenal world. This does not mean that everything that is illogical belongs to that world, but it means absolutely that everything which belongs to that world is illogical from our standpoint. We have established the fact that it is impossible to penetrate there with our logic, and we have also established the possibility of penetrating into these heretofore inaccessible regions by means of the new organ of thought. The consciousness of the necessity for such an instrument of thought undoubtedly existed from far back. For what, in substance, does the formula Tatvanasi represent if not the fundamental axiom of transcendental logic? That art thou means thou art both thou and not thou, and corresponds to the superlogical formula A is both A and not A. If we examine ancient writings from this standpoint, then we shall understand that their authors were searching for a new logic and were not satisfied with the logic of the things of the phenomenal world. The seemingly illogicality of the ancient philosophical systems, which portrayed an ideal world, as it were, instead of an existing one, will then become comprehensible, for in these portrayals of the ideal world, systems of higher logic often lie concealed. One of such misunderstood attempts to construe a system of higher logic, to give a precise instrument of thought, penetrating beyond the limits of the visible world, is the treatise of Plotinus, and inverted commas, on intelligible beauty. Describing heaven and the gods, Plotinus says, All the gods were venerable and beautiful, and their beauty is immense. What else, however, is it but intellect through which they are such? and because intellect energises them in so great a degree as to render them visible, by its light. For it is not because their bodies are beautiful, for these gods that have bodies do not through this derive their subsistence as gods, but these also are gods through intellect. For they are not at one time wise, and at another destitute of wisdom. But they are always wise, in an impassive, stable, and pure intellect. 
they likewise know all things, not human concerns, precedentaneously, but their own, which are divine, and such as intellect sees, dot, dot, dot. For all things there are heaven, and there the earth is heaven, and also are the sea, animals, plants, and men. The gods likewise that it contains do not think men undeserving of their regard, nor anything else that is there, because everything there is divine. And they occupy and pervade without ceasing the whole of that, in brackets blissful, region. For the life in which there is unattended with labour, the truth, as Plato says in the Phaedrus, is their generator and nutriment, their essence and nurse. They likewise see all things, not those with which generation, but those with which essence is present. And they perceive themselves in others, for all things there are diaphanous, and nothing is dark and resisting, but everything is apparent to everyone internally and throughout. For light everywhere meets with light, since everything contains all things in itself and again sees all things in another, so that all things are everywhere and all is all. Each thing likewise is everything, and the splendour there is infinite, for everything there is great, since even that which is small is great. The sun too which is there is all the stars, and again each star is the sun and all the stars. In each, however, a different property predominates, and all, but at the same time all things are visible in each. Motion likewise there is pure, for the motion is not the confounded by a mover different from it. Permanency also suffers no change of its nature, because it is not mingled with the unstable. And the beautiful there is beautiful, because it does not subsist in beauty, as in a subject. Each thing too is there established, not in a foreign land, but in the seat of each thing is that which each thing is. Dot, dot, dot. Nor is the thing itself different from the place in which it subsists, for the subject of it is intellect, and it is itself intellect. Dot, dot, dot. There each part always proceeds from the whole, and is at the same time each part of the whole, for it appears indeed as a part, but for him whose sight is acute, it will be seen as a whole. Dot, dot, dot. There is likewise no weariness of the vision which is there, nor any plenitude of perception which can bring intuition to an end. For neither was there any vacuity which, when filled, might cause the visive energy to cease, nor is this one thing, but that another, so as to occasion a part of one thing is not to be amicable with that of another. And the knowledge which is possible there is insatiable. Dot, dot, dot. For by seeing itself more abundantly, it perceives both itself and the objects of its perception to be infinite. It follows its own nature, and in brackets, in unceasing contemplation. The life there is wisdom, a wisdom not obtained by reasoning process, because the whole of it always was, and is not in any respect efficient, so as to be in want of investigation. But it is the first wisdom, and it is not derived from another. And this is Asterix by Spensky. And the Asterix is a bridged quotation from the select works of Plotinus, translated by Thomas Taylor, Bones Library. And Spensky continues, Closely akin to Plotinus is Jacob Baum, who was a common shoemaker in the German town of Görlitz, and in brackets, end of the 16th and beginning of the 17th century and who has left a whole series of remarkable books. 
His first, Illumination, occurred in 1600 AD when he was 25 years old. And this is also asterisk by Spinsky. All of the ensuing quotations are from the books of Professor William James and of Dr. R. M. Buck. And Spinsky continues. Sitting one day in his room, his eyes fell upon the burnished pewter dish which reflected the sunshine with such marvellous splendour that he fell into an inward ecstasy. And it seemed to him as if he could now look into the principles and deepest foundations of things. He believed that it was only a fancy, and in order to banish it from his mind, he went out upon the green. But here he remarked that he gazed into the very heart of things, the very herbs and grass, and that the actual nature harmonised with what hid him would he seen. He said nothing of this to anyone, but praised and thanked God in silence. Of the first illumination, Bond's biographer says, he learnt to know the innermost foundation of nature, and acquired the capacity to see henceforth with the eyes of the soul into the heart of all things, a faculty which remained with him even in his normal condition. And Spensky continues to quote, About the year 1600, in the 25th year of his age, he was again surrounded by the divine light, and replenished with the heavenly knowledge, insomuch as going abroad in the fields to a green before Ney's gate at Gurlitz, he there sat down, and viewing the herbs and grass of the field in his inward light, he saw into their essences, use and properties, which were discovered by him by their lineaments, figures and signatures. In like manner he beheld the whole creation, and from that foundation of revelation he afterwards wrote his book, The Signature Rerum. In the unfolding of these mysteries before his understanding, he had a great measure of joy, yet returned home and took care of his family and lived in great peace and silence, scarce intimating to any of these wonderful things that had befallen him. And in the year 1610, being again taken into this light, lest the mysteries revealed to him should pass through him as a stream, and rather for the memorial than intending any publication, he wrote his first book called Aurora, or The Morning Redness. Spensky continues, the first illumination in 1600 was not complete. Ten years later, 1610, he had another remarkable inward experience. What he had previously seen only chaotically, fragmentarily, and isolated glimpses, he now beheld as a coherent whole and in more definite outlines. Spensky continues to quote, when his third illumination took place, that which in former visions had appeared to him as chaotic and multifarious was now recognised by him as a unity, like a harp of many strings, of which each string is a separate instrument, while the whole is only one harp. And this is asterisked again, and the asterisk notes. See quotation from Van Manen's book, chapter 11, page 125. And Spensky continues to quote, he now recognised the divine order of nature, and how from the trunk of the tree of life spring different branches, bearing manifold leaves and flowers and fruits, and he became impressed with the necessity of writing down what he saw and preserved the record. And Spensky continues, he himself speaks of his final and complete illumination as follows. And Spensky again quotes, The gate was open to me that in one quarter of an hour I saw and knew more than if I had been many years at university at which I exceedingly admired, and thereupon turned my praise to God for it. For I saw and knew the being of all beings, the abyss and the abyss, 
and the eternal generation of the Holy Trinity that is sent and original of the world and all the creatures through divine wisdom. I knew and saw in myself all the three worlds, namely, number one, the divine, angelical and paradisical, number two, and the dark, the original of nature to the fire, and three, then the external and visible world, being a procreation or external birth from both the internal and spiritual worlds. And I saw and knew the whole working essence in the evil and the good, and the original and the existence of each of them, and likewise how the fruitful, bearing, womb of eternity brought forth. So I did not only greatly wonder at it, but did also exceedingly rejoice. I'm going to leave it there for part one, and we'll continue with what Boehm writes in part two of this three-part series for this chapter 22.